You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode, just a few weeks after Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou lost a critical decision in her extradition case, two Canadians in Chinese custody have been charged with espionage. Cars are returning to Stanley Park on Monday, but the park board voted to designate one of the lanes for bikes. Yesterday, Stanley Park stakeholders told us they were considering legal action against the board because taking cars out of the park will have a huge impact on their business. And the city of Victoria is set to vote on whether or not to reallocate funding from existing programs such as policing to address mental health and addiction issues in that community. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, two Canadians being held in China have now been charged with espionage. Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig have been detained since December of 2018. Those arrests widely believed to have been an act of retaliation for the detaining of Meng Wanzhou in Canada. Let's check in with Globe and Mail correspondent in Beijing, Nathan Vanderclip. He's joining us now to talk a little bit more about this. Nathan, thanks so much for being with us. You're very welcome. What do we know at this point about the charges facing Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor? Well, they're espionage charges. They are both charged with uh, spying on state secrets, collecting classified intelligence, and uh, in the case of Michael Spavor, illegally offering secrets to foreign entities. Uh, But importantly, what we also know is that, that China is calling these serious allegations, and that's a legal term that indicates that the potential sentence for these is a minimum of 10 years and a maximum of life in prison. We've also been hearing that at this point, uh, Chinese officials have been saying because of COVID-19, that's restricted access to both men even more. What happens now? Does anything change that you know of that if they're formally charged, will they get access to a lawyer? Does that change anything as far as their situation? Well, they had access to a lawyer. They had access to lawyers in in uh, earlier this year. So Michael uh, Spavor, for example, met with his lawyer in mid-January, uh, but have, they have not been allowed to since uh, the Chinese authorities today said that, you know, when the situation is resolved with regards to the pandemic, when, when things become better there, that they will be allowed to resume meetings with consular officials and their lawyers. Uh, but of course, there's, there's an irony here. Well, we, the, the, the Chinese authorities in Beijing, for example, have said that this fresh outbreak of the epidemic here uh, is under control, and in other parts of the country even more so. At the same time, you have uh, officials in the Justice Department saying that people in detention can't be granted access to lawyers. That's not exclusive to these, to, to Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. This is across the justice system, but you have a real disconnect in terms of how people in China are talking about the pandemic. What are the chances that we will learn more about these charges or get a chance to see even the proceedings if this does go to the point that the two men are tried? Almost no chance that we'll see the proceedings. Uh, Very little chance that we will learn anything more about the charges against them. They know they've been heavily interrogated, so they will have a sense of what the Chinese state believes are the case against them. Their lawyers also have some sense of what that is. Uh, I spoke with a lawyer today for uh, Michael Spavor. He said, I can't talk about any of this. Uh, China treats these issues with regard to things they call state secrets violations uh, very seriously, seriously to the degree that even the lawyers can't talk about them. I know you've talked to friends of the men as well or others that say there's absolutely no way these men were spies and are are thinking that this is more retaliation for Meng Wanzhou being held in Vancouver. Uh, Is is that the general feeling or the reaction that you're getting from people? 
Sure, yeah. I mean, we, we've even heard this in the last few weeks from scholars inside China that the cases are very clearly linked. So while the official line out of the Chinese government remains that they are not linked, uh, I don't think there are many people who uh, believe that. Uh, there are other Canadians in China as well. Uh, Fan Wei or Robert Schellenberg, people have been following along. Uh, he's been uh, sentenced to death on drug charges. Uh, has there been any update or do we anticipate any update there? So I've been, I've been monitoring that because both, both Fan Wei and Robert Schellenberg were up on drug charges and then were sentenced to death on those charges. And um, they, they are at a point where decisions can be made in terms of sort of moving ahead on those cases very quickly in the Chinese system. At this point, we don't have any indication. I spoke with lawyers for both men today, and they both said that there's been uh, no change in their status. What will happen next, then, or do you know what happens next, going back to Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig? Well, uh, presumably their situation and attention won't change much. Uh, uh, and, and we know from previous Canadians who've been in this situation that they are likely to be in that situation until very suddenly they will be called into trial. And that trial could, could last as, as short as, as, as a single day or perhaps even less than that. And this is a justice system in China that has a 99.9 plus percent conviction rate. Um, so, um, but the, the question is when any of these things can happen. Their trial could take quite a long time. It could easily be more than a year before the trial happens. And we have plenty of examples in China where post-trial, the wait for sentencing uh, can be years. Uh, so, so at this point in time, uh, for their situation, we don't know for certain, but there's evidence to believe uh, that there's little change for them. And they'll stay in the same detention space, uh, the same conditions in the meantime? Yes. All right. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. We'll continue following it to, to see if there are any developments, but appreciate your time today. You're very welcome. All right. Nathan Vanderclip is the Globe and Mail Beijing correspondent. And uh, again, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, both who have been detained in China since December 2018, have now been charged with espionage. And we will continue following this to see if there are any updates. My guess is Justin Trudeau will be asked about this when he holds his briefing a bit later this morning. We'll bring you that update uh, when it's available. This is Mornings with Simi. Time to take a look at what's happening on the political stage, federally speaking. The four conservative candidates squared off last night in the last official debate of that leadership race. All candidates taking aim at the Trudeau government and calling for a united conservative party. Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole, the front runners in this race, followed by rival social conservatives Leslin Lewis and Derek Sloan. The candidates took aim at topics including what post-pandemic life will look like in Canada, racism and the environment. Let's uh, talk a little bit more about this. Global's chief political correspondent David Aiken joins us now from Ottawa. David, the first question after any debate, did it move the dial when we're looking at the conservative leadership race? Well, I think it did, and it moved it in an an interesting way. In this race, we've got four candidates, two are leaders, Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole. Uh, You can argue who's in front. I think Peter McKay's in front. But either way, it's pretty clear from the behavior of the two leaders last night that I think they believe there's going to be more than one ballot. And this is one of those races you got to get 50% plus one to win. So assuming that neither McKay nor O'Toole think they're going to get 50% plus one, 
Then we look at the other two candidates and where will their supporters go when they drop off the ballot. Now, the other two candidates are Leslyn Lewis. Uh, she's ne never held office. She's a Toronto lawyer. And uh, Derek Sloan. He's a uh, first-term Ontario MP. Both Lewis and Sloan are running as social conservatives, uh, Sloan in particular. They think the party should be doing a lot more to talk about abortion, about uh, conversion therapy, about uh, right-to-die legislation. Um, and uh, Sloan, is, is, he's definitely, that's the centerpiece of his campaign. Lewis, a little less so. So knowing that these groups, uh, the social conservatives supporting these two candidates, you know, they're going to go somewhere. O'Toole and McKay, it was clear to me last night, were making a pitch for Lewis's supporters. The party really likes Lesson Lewis. Lesson Lewis, if you haven't seen her yet, she's black. She came uh, to Canada from Jamaica at the age of five. You know, she's got a master's in environmental studies. She's got a PhD in law from Osgoode Law School. Ran, is running her own successful law firm. Party loves the story of Lesson Lewis, and who wouldn't? It's a great Canadian story. And so, Tool and McKay last night, all night long, in what was a very polite debate saying, oh, I agree with Ms. Lewis. Oh, Ms. Lewis, you make an excellent point. Oh, I'd like to echo the point Ms. Lewis uh, made. And so that's where the dial moved. It's, it's quite clear people are zeroing in on Lewis and her supporters. She's apparently, her fundraising is great, and she's probably got, you know, somewhere around 12% support right now. That's what, what we can feel out. And she could be the uh, the kingmaker in this thing. But not the leader, because it seems like there's, like you said, the push to get her supporters in that, but but it's not going to be the, this kind of true underdog story that she could go no. and surpass the two. No, and, and that's her French is, is just not there. And when I say not there, it's uh, in the French language debate the night before. I mean, she literally had to read everything, and, and, and it was it was not... It, it just she can't speak French, and Quebec forms a huge part of the voting block for this race. And of course, Quebec forms an important constituency uh, in any general election. In fact, there's there's it even for English-speaking Canadians, particularly Ontario Canadians, Ontarians really like the idea of a bilingual prime minister. So she's not going to win, uh, but she, as I say, I think she's going to be uh, the kingmaker. One of the other th interesting things, though, too, here, Jill, is one of the themes of this leadership race has been. How does this party square the 20 to 30 percent of its members that are social conservatives and really want to talk about some of those issues around abortion, etc., with the fact that, as Peter McKay said himself, the social conservative bent of the party was like, a, as he said, a stinking albatross around the party's neck that prevented them from beating Trudeau and the liberals. The broader Canadian electorate does not think that issues around uh, abortion uh, or undoing the ban on conversion therapy are the ballot box issues. Social conservatives do, but the vast bulk of the Canadian voting public does not. And so it's sort of, do you want to win? and maybe appeal to a broader base, or do you want to stick to this more narrow base? That's that's really where the this leadership race has hinged to a large degree. And so those are some of the issues, like you said, that the more of the, the social conservatives are focused on and want to take the discussion that way. What about some of the other key issues? couple of inter interesting ones from last night. First, uh, issue that's been in the news recently, racism. All the candidates were asked, do you believe in systemic racism? Peter McKay said, yes, absolutely, it exists. Leslyn Lewis says it exists, and she had a good answer, and she said, we can say systemic racism exists. It doesn't mean individual Canadians may be racist, but take a look at the outcomes for Canadians of color, quite different than for Canadians who are not members of visible minorities. Derek Sloan also agreeing racism exists, but... 
Aaron O'Toole refusing to answer the question. And he refused to answer again when he was asked right after the debate by reporters. He wouldn't say. One other interesting exchange on climate change. Here, Aaron O'Toole was uh, had a challenge for his party. O'Toole says... Uh, his climate change policy would be to force large industrial emitters to reduce their GGEs. The other three candidates are just get rid of the carbon tax types. Um, O'Toole's challenge is saying, listen, conservatives, until and unless we have a credible, well-communicated plan on climate change, conservatives are not going to win votes in Ontario, in Quebec, on Vancouver Island, in large parts of B.C., until that exists. And uh, that is what is preventing conservatives from beating the liberals. Got to have a better plan on climate change. That's the challenge for O'Toole. Hmm, interesting. Uh, where does it go from here? We've had now these two debates. What's next? Uh, next is really the voting, and it's a lot of partisans are are uh, kind of upset about that, or upset or sad. Uh, you know, the pandemic has sort of made this debate a bit weird, but there's no more debate scheduled, or at least any official debate. So now the ballots will go out to Conservative Party members; they'll be mailed out. You should have them by July, the end of July, and then the ballots have to come back in. The voting ends on August 21st. The party still has not sort of said, well, when will we know who's the leader? I think the party's waiting to see if, you know, public health uh, environment changes that they might have a convention kind of thing. I think they want to have a big, you know, the thunder sticks and balloons and get some excitement for the new leader. Uh, We don't know if that's going to be possible. But I think by the end of the summer, we will certainly know who is the new leader of the official opposition, who is the new Conservative Party leader of Canada. All right. We will stay tuned. David, thanks so much. Always good to chat with you. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Have a great morning. That is David Aiken. He is Global News' chief political correspondent in Ottawa, bringing us up to date on what is happening with the Conservative leadership race. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, a Canadian partnership, a truly Canadian partnership, has brought together technology giants and construction partners to create COVID-19 testing pods. And we are joined now by the co-founder of Citizen Care Pods. Carl DeMarco is on the line. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. These sound super interesting. What exactly is a Citizen Care Pod? Uh, what a Citizen Care Pod is basically a portable virus testing center. They're uh, refurbished, redone shipping containers, but done into a safety, high-grade medical unit uh, that allows and protects the safety of the frontline workers and also the public of uh, getting tested for COVID. And this really is a partnership. How did all the groups come together and come up with this? Well, uh, it started with myself and an architect firm called WZMH, and one of the key partners there, Zenon and I, I call him Chief Creative Genius, by the way. We just started brainstorming and what, what the new COVID world was going to look like. And we were seeing companies being shut down and people losing their jobs and the, the virus was spreading at workplaces, et cetera, like construction sites. And we came up with the idea, well, we need to do more testing and we came up with this idea, and we talked about some cool technology we could put into there. And then within 48 hours, we had everything designed with regarding electrical, mechanical, et cetera. Then we approached PCL, which is the largest construction company in Canada. And matter of fact, they're the largest uh, construction company in Canada that's also building hospitals. And we, we showed them what we had. They loved it. They have two plants in Etobicoke in Toronto and another one out west in in Edmonton and three in the United States. We had uh, prototypes built within a period of three weeks. 
And then we brought in, uh, prior to that, we brought in also Microsoft. They loved it. They brought a lot into the table regarding bringing technology partners to the table. And uh, their Citizen Care Pod was born. Hmm. And so are they up and running at this point? So uh, they've just been sent out, and this week was our first official launch week. So we had some test sites that we, we sent them out to out in uh, Edmonton, per se. And in a short time period, we're already in negotiations right now with probably two dozen companies, government agencies, because these uh, citizen care pod units will be uh, available to be used at airports. So we're already talking to some uh, airports and airlines. Uh, We think they can be used at schools. Uh, We're talking to anywhere from small to medium to large size businesses that want to test their employees. Uh, You know, so the use of this is across the board to basically test as much as possible to roll back the economy and jobs and people back to the workplace in a safe, you know, environment. And uh, we've also been dealing with uh, sporting leagues, uh, you know, as they're looking to get back into play. You know, we've had some discussions with the NHL and some of the other uh, sporting leagues. And so we also think this would be a big help for hospitals, uh, long-term care homes, et cetera. So it's a broad use across the board. And will it then, how would it work then? Somebody could go to the pod and would they pay for a test and then get the results in in a quick fashion? Or how would it actually work for the public? So for the public is that they would go to to the pod and usually you'll pre-book an appointment. Uh, You get tested. Typically the Ministry of Health would pay for the uh, testing uh, of the you know, COVID tests. Now, there's two types of tests right now. One's a PCR test where the test uh, will be collected, sent to laboratory, and results are turned around 24 hours. And then the other one, which is still probably maybe 60 days away, it's called point of care test, where the testing units are actually in the pods. They get tested and they get a result within 15 minutes. And right now, uh, Health Canada is in a process of looking at different uh, point-of-care tests to be approved. And once that's happening, uh, once, it, once that approval happens, including the same thing in the United States with the FDA, then the point-of-care systems will come more into play. And I believe the public wants to get more tests done for safety reasons, but in a quick, rapid fashion and a safe fashion also. All right. Well, it, it really is a great partnership, and to see this happening so quickly. Uh, Carl, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That is Carl DeMarco, Citizen Care Pods co-founder. Very interesting seeing them uh, old shipping containers repurposed and used for COVID-19 testing. This is Mornings with Simi. I'm hopeful that we can open the park by the 22nd, which is what staff told us today, to vehicular traffic. And I'm confident that, you know, that can happen. And I'm excited to hear what the plans are. That was the park board chair, Vancouver Park Board chair, at the meeting that was held yesterday. It went past midnight as many people signed up to speak. And what we know at this point is cars are returning to Stanley Park on Monday. But the board has also voted to designate one of the existing traffic lanes for cyclists. Yesterday, Stanley Park stakeholders told us they were considering legal action against the board because taking cars out of the park will have a huge impact on their business. So let's bring in former BC Attorney General Wally Opal to talk about how he's involved with this. Wally Opal, thanks so much for being with us. 
Always good to be with you, Joe. Uh, how are you involved? Who do you represent in what's I, happening here? I represent a number of the stakeholders, uh, including uh, the owners of the uh, Prospect Point Cafe uh, and disabilities groups who are very upset at what has taken place. A number of people have consulted me. I met with them this week. And uh, the if we step back a bit, Jill, here's what's happened. The uh, park was closed in April, as it should have been during the uh, pandemic uh, crisis. It could have been reopened on May the 19th during phase two of the protocol. However, um, the park board kept it closed. And then on June the 4th, they held a meeting by Zoom with a, a few of the stakeholders, and they advised them as to what their plan was. The plan was to to close one lane of traffic for cars, open up another bike lane, but this one would go right through the middle of the parking lot uh, that is now uh, used by the Prospect Point Cafe. Now, Nancy Stibbert and the Prospect Cafe have been there for many, many years. In fact, it's an iconic landmark, and that will clearly impact not only on her business, but it will impact on the number of people who will want to go to that landmark and look at the view. It's a tremendous view. It's world-renowned, and uh, so this will have an adverse effect on that. But, but most of all, aside from the adverse effect on the businesses, they didn't consult with anybody. They went ahead and did this. There's no consultation with the police, no consultation with fire. The emergency uh, response teams are going to have a difficult time getting in there. None of that was ever... Uh, ever uh, uh, canvassed. You know, the Parks Board is a democratically elected body. They need to know what the principles of a democracy are. They need to consult with members of the public and to seek advice and take advice where it's appropriate. The, I'm just marveled at the, um, astonished at the level of arrogance where they present the uh, people who are involved in the park, who have businesses in the park, who use the park for commercial reasons and other reasons is something that is fait complete. Here's our plan. You know, we're going to run a bike lane right through your parking lot. No consultation, none of that. And that's, that's very disturbing. The process is disturbing. It's a sham. Uh, so what does the lawsuit say, or what are you hoping that will accomplish? Well, we haven't, uh, we haven't met with the people with respect to what the next step will be. I know that people are upset and I, started getting calls late last night and early this morning and uh so it's premature and i don't want to say anything yet without a uh, complete consultation with the pe- people who are uh, who are adversely affected but i'm very disturbed as a citizen of vancouver that that they would go ahead and do this and they didn't talk to the police didn't talk to fire people and they just went ahead and did this because in their opinion in their uh in their world this is the best thing to do and uh it's a type of arrogance that really tells us that they know what's best for all of us. Do you have any sense of the, the losses? Like you said, the park drive itself has been closed to traffic since April 8th. So they're now saying that one lane will open up on Monday. Uh, have the businesses been able to put together how much they've lost or how much they anticipate they'll continue to lose, even with that partial opening? Well, they're doing that. There's no question that the, uh, the tea house is going to lose money. I spoke to Mike Akers the other day. He was in the office they're going to lose a considerable amount of money. Nancy Stibbard's uh, business, the uh, Prospect Point Cafe, is going to lose something like 70 parking spots. 
because the bike lane is going to go right through that parking lot. Now, what kind of intelligence and foresight is, uh, was used in order to cut through someone's parking lot? Could they not have gone and done something else? Are there not bike lanes in that area now? You know, these are things that need to be considered. The park board has a duty to listen to all citizens in a democratic process. That's what we, that's why we have these processes. That's why we elected bodies like elect bodies like the parks board. So they listen to and consult with members of the public and do what's in the public interest. So that's very disturbing. I'm more disturbed at the process. You know, they come to the stakeholders and say, here's what we're going to do. And uh, there's no room for movement, no move, no room for any consultation or compromise. And that's very disturbing. This is a democracy. And um, none of those democratic principles appear to have been adhered to. Yeah, they had a meeting last night. Uh, is anybody surprised at the outcome? No. Five to two? Right. It was, it was a done deal. And, uh, it also sorry. seems, sorry, do you get the impression that they're they're using the pandemic as an excuse to do this in that before the pandemic, I don't recall there being this huge problem in that the more avid cyclists have always used the road. The the cyclists that are more of the touristy selfie-taking cyclists have always shared the seawall with pedestrians, and that seemed to work. It was working very well, in fact. Uh, I just want everybody to know that our group is not opposed to cycling. We understand that the, as we look into the future, there's going to be more accommodation for cyclists. And the people, the businesses in the park get that. They're not opposed to cyclists, but they're surely opposed to what's been done here, where their views have not been paid attention to, and, uh, and, and their interests have been adversely and negatively affected. That's the problem here. So what happens next to, from, with your involvement? Well, uh, we're going to have a meeting this morning, and uh, so uh, stay tuned. I, I don't know. Uh, I take instructions, and I consult with people, and uh, we'll have to decide what to do. Everybody's got an interest in it. The people who are most aggrieved are the, are the disabilities organizations. Phil Rankin uh, represents a number of them, and uh, they consulted with me, and they tell me that the people who are quadriplegics and paraplegics will find it most difficult now to go to that park. This was great. These were great outings for people with disabilities. They were not consulted in the least. That's disturbing. It uh, definitely is. We will talk more about this, but we'll have to leave it there for today. Wally Opal, thanks so much for your time. Always good to be with you, Jill. All right. Wally Opal, who is representing some of the businesses, a former AG, talking about the decision made with little, if any, consultation. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there has been a lot of talk about defunding the police protests taking place around the world, really. And now the city of Victoria is set to vote on whether or not to reallocate funding from existing programs such as policing to address mental health and addiction issues in that community. A motion has been approved in committee. Council is now set to vote next week on whether or not to consider funding alternative programs instead. Councillor Marianne Alto supported this through the committee stage, and she now joins us to talk more about what this could look like. Councillor, thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure, Joe. Good morning. Uh, what exactly was, was voted on then, or what has been decided at this point? So we have, as do most municipalities, a two-part stage, and so yesterday was our Committee of the Whole, 
And uh, that's where we have an opportunity for a very full conversation about a variety of different motions and ideas and uh, issues and programs. And this came to our table yesterday, uh, was approved, and will come back to us for final consideration next week at our council meeting. And what might it look like then if it's approved to take away some of the funding from parts of, say, policing and put it somewhere else? Well, what the motion actually talks about is creating an alternative uh, way for us to respond to community crises. And as, of course, everyone knows in the current context, uh, most of the time, whenever something happens in your neighborhood, your first call is to emergency services, and that usually means 911 and police, fire, or ambulance. Sometimes that's entirely appropriate, but there are other times, and we've seen many examples of that uh, well over the years, but particularly of late, I guess, we've been paying some attention, more attention to it. You know, there are arguments to be made that there might be a better immediate response to some of those crises. And I just want to step back once at, uh, one moment, Joe, and say this is a conversation that we've been having in Victoria for four or five years now. Uh, and in fact, uh, back in 2015, when we were looking at our budget at that point, uh, we actually were considering motions at that time to include in our budget a fairly significant amount of money to look at civilian-based uh, health care professionals who could be uh, either working with the police, and that's certainly an option, uh, or working independently in that type of a crisis response team. So this is, although, of course, you know, the current conversation is extremely relevant and is offering, in an odd way, an opportunity for there to be a more fulsome conversation about these possibilities, and I think it's created an appetite very broadly to have these conversations. You know, this has been on the radar for Victoria for quite a few years. Uh, and has Victoria, as a council, then, have you been uh, liaising and consulting with police about what this might look like? Oh, yes. We've had been having this conversation with the police for some time. We haven't been able to find that perfect fit yet, and that's one of the things that's important for this particular motion. I expect, by the way, that it will pass again next week because it was unanimous yesterday, which was a bit of a surprise, I have to say, because we have a fairly eclectic uh, uh, council. Uh, but yes, it was unanimous. And so we have been talking with police, and we expect to do so again, because where we are at this stage really is at the very beginning. This is just one step in a very big picture. And uh, what, we're, what we've asked our staff to do is to go away and essentially do a bit of research with what other municipalities have done, because there are many good examples. But then to put that in the context of Victoria's particular situation and propose uh, for our consideration as council some ways in how to develop this type of a framework. And one of the models that we did uh, suggest is one of the many different uh, research models or examples uh, is the one that comes out of Eugene, Oregon. That's called Kahoot. And it is an independent, um, not-for-profit style model, uh, but it does have a relationship with their police departments. It's broader than just one municipality. And uh, there are many models like that around North America where uh, you know, we're going to be doing some initial research but then really importantly, engaging our own community, particularly uh, communities of individuals who've had experience uh, with community crisis and its response, uh, and providing those folks with an opportunity to give us some advice as well on what they would like to see in this. And I I really need to stress that we're at the very beginning of this conversation uh, in a practical sense, because although we're focusing to start on mental health and addictions, Obviously, there are many more issues that come to fore uh, in the community when there is a crisis, and we want to see what we can do in this piece and then begin to add all the other pieces to the puzzle so that we can make something that's cohesive and integrated. And and whether 
whether it works as a complement to the police department, whether it works as a partnership with the police department, uh, whether it's a completely civilian operation or actually even something that works within the police department with civilian staff, we don't know that yet. And all of that is on the table. It is an interesting way of looking at it. And certainly there are more conversations right now about the role of police and not, I mean, especially if we're talking about, uh, we've been talking about wellness checks because of what happened to, to Chantel Moore, uh, but yes. where police are needed or, or where perhaps it would be better to have a different type of response. Uh, it does often come down to money though. And I know police mm-hmm. departments are reluctant to, to see their budgets cut. Where would the funding come from or would it be a reallocation of funding? It's a great question, and I honestly don't know. Uh, It could be both. It could be a little bit of both. It could be either. And I think everyone is realistic enough to know that it's going to take some resourcing. We don't quite know what that will be yet or the extent of that yet, obviously, because we don't know what the program looks like yet. But it very well could be that there's a reapportionment of some of the existing police budget. It could be new budget. I think, you know, we've heard from our police chief uh, regularly, and I think it's true of every municipality, certainly, uh, that they have not enough funding to do the work that they're doing now. And I think, you know, you, I come back from this to the point where I say there, there is absolutely a role for police in our municipality. You know, don't, don't anyone think that that's not the case. Uh, the question is, is it this particular role that they're best at? And whether they are or they aren't is part of this conversation. And once we begin to look at what this new thing can be and how it works, then we'll be able to have that really difficult conversation about where does the money come from? We've also been told regularly that um, even if we can uh, find this great uh, new uh, way forward, uh, even if we did have the ability to fund it in an adequate way, which we're all hoping that we do, there's no doubt that the police could use their existing resources to do other police-related work that has been falling by the wayside for some years. And so I think I think that's going to be a very difficult part of the conversation when we get there. But more importantly for now is for us to actually create a practical, achievable and doable model that fits for the city of Victoria and deals with the, the many uh, community crises that we're facing. All right. We'll leave it there. Councillor Alto, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Have a good day. All right, you too. That is Councillor Marianne Alto with Victoria City Council. That city looking at different ways of funding and different types of responses, particularly when it comes to mental health and addiction issues in that city.